don't monopolize the conversation and go on and on without stopping. Nothing destroys the charm of a meal more quickly. Look at that blouse. You don't seem to be exactly the type to make this guy behave like a human being. This flat tire needs a man. But there's one trick. The models use it. How to lose five pounds in five seconds. Whoa, 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 whoa. Sorry. Sorry about that, guys. Sorry. The patriarchy got in here. I don't know how it happened. It won't happen again. Welcome back. You're listening to episode four of Room in the Margins, the show where we talk about dismantling things that keep us from being fully liberated humans. And for today's episode, I sat down with my friend Julianne Rivers Cochran, who has been a domestic violence prevention advocate for years. She started out as a volunteer at a shelter, and then she just zoomed up the chain until she was working on policy and statewide initiatives. Uh, Julianne is one of the most resilient people that I know, uh, and she also happens to be obsessed with Dave Matthews Band, for reasons that we will definitely get into. Uh, Just as a heads up, we don't get too in-depth on specific trauma in this episode, but we do discuss mental health and intimate partner violence as a societal issue. So I leave it to you to make the call whether this is one you want to sit out on, um, but I hope you'll stay. Without further ado, here's Julianne. So I got in my head that I wanted to go into social work and get a master's in social work. So I went and talked to a professor and I could describe him in grave detail to this day because it was a very, notable conversation. And I still, to this day, don't know if he was trying to encourage me or discourage me from doing it, but I could tell he didn't like me. (laughs) We'll just put it that way. (laughs) And didn't want me in his program. Um, So he challenged me to go volunteer somewhere, you know, go take your time somewhere, see if you're really serious about this. And you could just hear the tone in his voice. So I said, okay. And of course, at that time, I took a challenge to heart and decided, absolutely, I'm going to do this, darn it. Um, so I started volunteering at the local domestic violence and sexual assault center. And at that point in time, um, I didn't really recognize until I was in that volunteer training that I, in fact, had been a survivor, a, an adult survivor of domestic violence it, with a group of men and women that were solely and 100% dedicated to social justice and in particular survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. And that meant something really important to me. So I started volunteering there and couldn't get enough of it. I took every shift I could. Um, Day in and day out, I just fell in love with the work more and more. And when you work in a domestic violence or sexual assault shelter in particular, like an emergency shelter where people go because they're needing to flee violence. You work the the graveyard shift, put it that way. So I was working evenings, overnights, anything I could. And the first position that opened was, of course, an overnight position. So I took that, quit my job. I don't even remember the details of the job at that point, but I I do remember the detail of cutting like $10,000 out of my salary. So I then picked up two other small part-time positions and I was working three jobs and I had never been happier Um, and worked my way up there and was before I knew it shelter director. Then I was residential manager um, and I got plucked out of there to do statewide work by the statewide coalition about two or three years into working there. And that's when I started doing advocacy work and statewide work. 
It's such an incredible trajectory to have started as a volunteer. I mean, is that uncommon? It, it seems to me, it strikes me that you started as a, a volunteer and we're soon doing statewide coalition work in a matter of years. Is that accurate? It's accurate and it is unusual. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it is unusual. It's uncomfortable to talk about how unusual it is. But yeah, I was ve <laughs> very driven and ambitious. And I guess, you know, I, I just finally found a space where everything that I was good at made sense, you know, it fit in and I was able to really translate a lot of which subsequently um, I had faced and learned growing up um, with a mother who experienced her own forms of violence as a child in particular and then growing up um, I had all these advocacy skills that I didn't know I had, basically being her advocate and her supporter. Um, so yeah, it was just a matter of finally those things becoming simpatico and really making sense for me. And you were mentioning that in those early days of training that you were kind of coming to realize that you had been in an abusive relationship. Do you think it's because we've normalized that abuse so much that it takes, because I don't, I don't think that is an uncommon experience. I think there are probably, mm -hmm. I would, I would say women, but like people that are experiencing that and maybe rationalizing or justifying it. And, and because of all the psychological components of it too, probably mm -hmm. aren't aware that they're in such a dire situation, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I, um, for me, a lot of it was, I didn't, I didn't understand the impact of all the other forms of violence other than physical, right? So when I was hearing that, these things, because in my relationship, my adult relationship, because I was also, as a child, I was abused in an abusive home. I don't like saying abused, but um, in an abusive home. So, but as the adult relationship transpired, it was none of the actual physical that you often, um, understand to be domestic violence for me at the time. I mean, I'm almost 48 now and at the time I was early 20s. So to me, because that person didn't beat me up, so to speak, didn't slap me or threaten me with a weapon, it wasn't as vital or as um, meaningful, you know, which is ridiculous, but I just didn't understand that at the time. And the critical factor that got me was the day that I started to learn about animal abuse or companion animal abuse and how companion animals are often used against survivors of abuse by their um, abusive partner. And in the case of my situation, when I left the relationship and left the home we were living in together, I had a cat and I did ask, will you please take care of my cat for the next couple of days while I figure out what I'm doing? I left a very long letter <laughs> with very strict instructions of what to do and that I'd be back for my cat in a couple of days, yada, yada, yada. And uh, yeah, um, a day later, I get a phone call um, from this person in distress saying my cat somehow just went up and died out of nowhere. <laughs> so I... At that point, when I was learning about, you know, people harm people's companion animals as a way to get at them and use power and control, especially when you're leaving, 
you know, because risk is higher and greater and escalation of violence is higher and greater when somebody leaves. I'll never forget that day when we were talking about it during that volunteer training. I just, my heart stopped and I realized, oh my gosh, that was me. Gosh, what a terrible thing to live through and then to later realize and come to terms with. Uh, so it sounds like you were on your way out of that relationship, but there are many people who stay in abusive relationships and that adds to the stigma. Um, has that changed over the years at all? What's really changed in a positive way over the years too, in terms of the movement to end violence against women and children is this idea of not assuming or presuming the safest option is for somebody to leave, right? So there are people that don't ever want to leave. So it's our role in this work as advocates to sort support people is to help them be as safe as possible if they never leave. Um, there's never, you always hope there's never a judgment around if a person leaves or stays, but there absolutely is. And that's why a lot of people do stay is because that judgment exists. Um, or why they don't disclose is because that judgment exists of, of why, how, how dare you stay in this? What, what the heck's wrong with you? Why would, why would you want to, you know, those sorts of things that people say intentionally or not. But um, yeah, the reality is people are going to stay. So it's our job to find a way to keep them safe, whatever that looks like, wherever they are, and if they choose to stay or not. If someone has a friend or family member who is experiencing domestic violence, um, what are some of the things that you would suggest or recommend um, to get that person support or, or, as you said, keep them safe? Well, the number one thing is to do your absolute best not to judge the person, similar to what we started to talk about, you know, because it may take a very long time, if not indefinitely, that that person is going to stay with that person or not. So the sort of fatigue that you can feel when you have a loved one that continues to tell you the ways in which they're being terrorized for long periods of time, it's difficult to consistently be present and consistently recognize how difficult it is for this person. And they may have to process the same experience a gazillion times with you. So being present and conscious of your own judgment, um, that's huge. And to educate yourself as much as possible too. Because I think another thing that friends and family don't really understand is how quickly violence can escalate. And when we're talking about violence in the world and of intimate partner violence or domestic violence or violence against women. There's so many different types, of course. There's physical, psychological, emotional, financial. And someone may never do anything but extreme financial abuse, say, or emotional abuse. And then the next day, all of a sudden, they could kill. That's, that's real, right? So recognizing that that person can be unpredictable but that friend or family member also recognizing and acknowledging that that person that's in the abusive relationship knows themselves and the relationship and the abusive partner better than anybody else. So to never second guess what they're saying, but to also help empower them in recognizing their own strength and just merely surviving day to day and really focusing on what those strengths are and at the same time, offering that support unconditionally. And that's really hard to do. I remember this one woman in one of the centers that I worked in. And 
um, she would come in, there was a sort of a cyclical nature to her abusive partner and that he would um, drink heavily, use drugs heavily, and that's primarily when he would be physically and sexually abusive. So she would call the center, ask to come in, and she would come in when that was happening. And we had advocates, um, most were absolutely supportive, but the most well-meaning person is also questioning, well, what the heck here? You know, she's just saying, you know, she's just basically sleeping here and using our services and, and going right back. And I would say that any day that that woman senses any judgment, even non-verbally, is the day she won't call if you answer or if she calls and hangs up, if she hears it's you, that could be the very day that he actually kills her. So this idea of judgment is so potentially harmful. And that goes for friends and family as well. Yeah, absolutely. You were mentioning that some of the, in, in finding social work and some of the skills that you uh, were, just the strengths that you already had, had really mm -hmm. built as a result of um, really caring for your mom through the years. Um, mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? Well, my, when I was one and a half, my parents divorced and one of the reasons they had divorced, um, was because my mother wasn't getting the help that she deserved or needed, um, because of, uh, a psychiatric disability. And at the time then, which would have been 1974 ish, I don't know what her diagnosis was. It did change a lot. Um, from schizophrenia to schizoaffective disorder, back to manic depression is what it was called at one point, and then back to schizoaffective before she died. So um, I would say that she would identify as, as living with, uh, being someone that lives with schizophrenia. But it, it came to our attention many years later that she was sexually abused as a child by a family member, um, and inadvertently, um, myself as well by the same family member later on uh, when I was a young child. Um, so it's like one of those chicken before the egg sorts of things with my mother where when she had been disclosing the abuse, she was then institutionalized and she was institutionalized at a time when the sort of psychiatric medications that they were using were very, very dangerous. Um, so, you know, she was still a young mind in lots of ways. So her mind was still growing. So you just don't know how much of whichever precipitated the other, if that makes sense. As a result, she went through countless numbers of psychiatric hospitalizations and living with her and my grandparents, um, I would visit her a lot, of course, when she was admitted to these hospitals. And I think that sort of visiting her there from as early on. I mean, I could, I could remember the first time I visited, I was, gosh, probably like three or four. I remember very distinctly what that was like. Um, created a, a very deep bond for us, <laughs> we'll put it that way. Whereas early on, I could tell that it wasn't her per se that I should be afraid of. It should be other people. <laughs> Um, even though she'd be doing scary things and screaming or if she was having um, either a break or a, a post-traumatic um, 
memory, whatever it was, it made way too much more sense than it should for a little kid. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was, it was very clear to me that she was trying to protect me, even though others were saying, get her away from her. Let's take her away. She's acting quote unquote crazy. So that created a bond between us. It's not to say we didn't have hard times. I mean, there were times when she would do things because she was out of control that are disturbing or upsetting. Like I know I, one year I remember making her a card for her birthday and she ripped it up because she was so agitated. So there are things like that. It wasn't perfect. I never want to give that perception. Um, but there is always this sense that we were in this together and in order to survive, we had to be in this together. And that created a, a very particular world that I lived in, a very particular lens. Um, when you're living with schizophrenia, I mean, now the world has become a much more compassionate, forgiving, and kind place, but it's still pretty bad when it comes to people that are exhibiting schizophrenic tendencies, you know? Um, and back then it was even worse. So I firsthand would see the discrimination she would face and the stigma and, you know, just things that people mean stuff people say when they know you're an earshot as a kid, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And I knew she was okay though. Like she was a good person and she cared about me and loved me and would do anything for me. So those things didn't make sense. I didn't understand why other people didn't see her that way. You know, I just didn't get it. What I think is so unique about the psychiatric health system, we'll say is first of all, it's overloaded, right? <laughs> so, and there's lots of people that don't have the insurance they deserve and need. Um, and the other thing, which is really unique, I think about the psychiatric system is there are so few people that actually have a loved one present, right? So a lot of loved ones just aren't also educated in the process or the system. Um, I don't think it's a sense of, healthcare system bad, providers bad. I don't think that's the case all the time. Sometimes it is, <laughs> but I think it's this idea of lots of people are displaced and discarded that have psychiatric disabilities. They live in, in group homes and family and friends don't wanna go there. Um, they don't wanna have contact with the other people in that home. They don't know how to behave or react, respond or otherwise show empathy. Um, so already there's this disconnect of what the world is like. So I think that's a big piece of it is that a lot of people that are caring for people in psychiatric situations are not used to having family or friends around. They're there for the crisis, a family member, but then they're gone. Um, so when you've got someone in your face like me, <laughs> that is very demanding and in persistent that yes, my mother in this case is the most important person that ever existed on this planet. So you will pay attention because I'm not going anywhere. Either people respond with annoyance, but they got to do it, or they you kind of they befriend you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's also I think advocacy is about empathy for the people that do care for people. As I got older, and what I mean is started doing the work, the social justice work that is the prevention and intervention of violence against women and children. Um, I learned more about um, the root causes, you know, and, and more about 
oppression and how um, violence against women is is rooted in the patriarchy and um, which also means in racism and, and all that. And when I reflect on that and my mom's experience and my experience with my mom, especially during those hefty years of advocacy, I, I have to be 100% transparent in that I'm also a white woman and she's a white pretty, was a white pretty woman. And I'm absolutely certain, certain that made a difference. As horrible as that is, that's the reality of having privilege in this world. And I think that has a lot to do with it too, in terms of systems. Don't think until the last 10 to 15 years, people have taken the responsibility to ensure that advocates understand their role and where they stand societally in terms of supporting the societal supports of violence against women. So if it's a white advocate understanding their privilege before they're working with any survivor, um, fill in the blank. So making sure that people do have a lens, a social justice lens, an empowerment lens, but a lens that recognizes their own privilege and also is striving for cultural humility throughout their career and lifetime um, because there's so much damage that can be done if people aren't acknowledging that and then working on that and doing the work well. This work seems extremely difficult, exhausting, and sort of defeating to me at times. How have you kept going and what do you hold on to? Um, well, I'm doing it so differently now than I was. So it's, it's a totally different dynamic where I used to be doing it 24-7 in a very high pressure, lots of crisis environment, and I'm not doing that anymore. So it's shifted what I need to do because it's just not 100% of my work. So whenever I was working with someone, I genuinely believed that I was nothing more but someone that was supporting them in that moment, cared about them deeply, wanted what was best for them, but I also knew I had absolutely no control over it, right? So I never got to the point that I hear a lot of people that do the work get where there's this sense of, you know, the doom and gloom situation, right? Like no matter what we do, there's a potential for her to her or him to still be harmed. There's a potential for um, an escalation of violence. You know, I always felt like I can only do just so much and my job is complete if I'm present in that moment with that person and supporting them as best I can in that moment. Other than that, I have absolutely no control. Well, I can tell you right now that that's a skill set that everyone could benefit from uh, from having. So uh, did that continue to serve you down the road? In 2004, Florida had four back-to-back -back really catastrophic hurricanes. At the statewide organization I was with, we realized that we needed to do something quickly because some of the domestic violence shelters were damaged and, and there were people still living in them. <laughs> you know, so next day, what do we do? Um, and we also recognize infrastructurally, we didn't have um, policies and procedures in place that would support evacuation ahead of time, that would support coordinating, you know, what would we do with the hotlines? You know, we need to do something because they can't answer the hotline. How do we 
answer them, answer it for them. You know, all these questions because the, the devastation was just happening so quickly. Um, and my role was to create a statewide process that we would support making sure that services were interrupted as best as possible making sure that if survivors need to be evacuated, we were coordinating where they could go with the other centers in the area, that we were taking the hotline so we would have a statewide hotline that could do that so that people could you know, evacuate. And also a program to help the helpers, in other words, help advocates once their center had reopened after a disaster, because the fact was they were facing the disaster of the hurricane, we'll say, and also helping support people that they're serving. And then Hurricane Katrina came. I decided to volunteer and put a lot of that work that I had learned in action in supporting staff in one of the domestic violence centers that was partially damaged but had reopened very shortly after Katrina to sustain staff and also support the survivors that were coming back into shelter. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you never told me that you were living in the shelter while you were doing this. For a couple of weeks in, with Katrina, yeah. After Hurricane Katrina, a lot of people didn't know if people had physically survived or not. Mm. They didn't know if people had evacuated or not. Um, so they were just reopening their doors, trying to find people um, after they evacuated. Actually, something that I still so vivid today. Um, every morning, I'd wake up, have my coffee, then I'd go into the hot office where staff were doing their work and every morning the entire time I was there it was most unsettling as staff were passing the newspaper to each other and quickly rifling through to the obituaries because they still didn't know where a lot of family or friends were and that's how they were finding out it was terrifying the biggest lesson that I did not follow and I tell everyone to this day is you have to do it with another person. And I just decided I needed to do this and my CEO supported me in doing so. And I didn't have anyone else trained with me at the time because we hadn't done a full blown process yet. So I just went by myself and it was the biggest mistake. You never should do that stuff alone. But anyway, it was one of the most remarkable learning experiences in my life. And what you always find after, if you're, fortunate enough to do disaster response work is the tremendous resiliency and remarkable humanity that comes out. It's an absolute honor to witness. And when there's that kind of destruction and devastation and death, and you see those moments of grace, it's just, it's life affirming. It really is. Well, thank you for sharing what you have uh, shared thus far. Um, I could take a left turn and ask, uh, where does sure. Dave Matthews Band fit <laughs> into this? Uh, how does your obsession manifest in your obsession? Life? That's such a strong word. Well, it's I could so ask true. Matt, <laughs> and so you terrify. Oh gosh, there's so much to talk about this. Let's see. There's this song, one song called "Dancing Nancys." And I was working and I had my little headphones in and I was a sports outfielder. So that means um, you're basically doing the summaries of games. 
So one of those, I, I was 23, and in that song, he refers to someone who's 23, and I'll never forget that moment because of what he was saying in that song. I, I identified so much. My husband's a musician, and he often talks about how transportive music is. The messages I got from Dave Matthews' band early work around um, just the beauty of life, because again, you know, you know my history now. It was a really hard life, and I was extremely traumatized at times. And frankly, I didn't ever imagine myself living at an older age because it just didn't even seem possible. Because when you're living through so much trauma like I had, all you were thinking about is getting out or getting to the next day, not appreciating and enjoying life. It's just something you do. So hearing these really positive, influential at the time lyrics just stayed with me. And I like that I'm transported back to that moment in time in my life where I was like, wait a second, there's so much more. I made it this far. I'm independent. Nobody's telling me what to do. I'm not, I'm not being, you know, terrorized anymore. Um, at the same time, it was when my mom was getting some help when we were able to. So all this stuff was just balled together and it just, it just became extremely meaningful to me. And so now when I listen to Dave Matthews band song, if it's one I like, um, I'm just reminded that, wow, I was given this opportunity to enjoy this life and I'm sure as hell going to try to do it, and this is one way to tap into that really quickly for me.